You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Gilbert. Liz is the beloved author of the 2006 runaway bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, which has sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. Eat, Pray, Love is Gilbert's memoir of soul-searching and international exploration in the wake of her devastating divorce. Committed, the follow-up to Eat, Pray, Love, tells the story of Gilbert's unexpected plunge into second marriage, this time to Felipe, the man with whom she falls in love at the end of Eat, Pray, Love. Her TED Talk on creativity has over 5 million views, and she recently finished a novel, The Signature of All Things, which will be published in the fall of 2013. Liz will be a featured presenter at the 2013 Emerging Women Live Conference from October 10th to the 13th in Boulder, Colorado. In today's episode, Liz and I spoke about her forthcoming novel, The Signature of All Things, of connection and how she uses it in her writing and how it plays out in her own life. We talked about the wisdom of details and how they can help us see a bigger picture. How perfectionism holds women back from living their truth. Curiosity and the creative process and how passion can sometimes hold us back. Here is my conversation, Creative Curiosity, discovering wisdom in the details of our lives with the honest and graceful Elizabeth Gilbert. Welcome, Liz. I feel kind of funny calling you Liz, but I guess everybody around you calls you Liz. I think, is that okay? If you call me Elizabeth, I'll think that you're my mother and you're mad at me. So it's probably best if you call me Liz. Okay, okay. Like well, everybody I else does. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be calling you Liz, and I'm honored to have you here on the Grace and Fire show. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, there's a lot of places that we'll probably end up going today. and But I, I wanted to start with your book, since it's sitting here right in my hands. And you were, you were so kind to send me a, an unproofed copy. And so I've had a chance to dig in a little bit. And I have to say, it's kind of a page turner. So it's, Oh, I'm so glad that it's making you turn the pages. That's what I want. I want you to sprain your wrist turning pages with this book. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize it. I thought, okay, I'm just going to have a, you know, because I knew we were having this call and I thought I want to get into this a little bit. And it's sort of, you know, one of those books is starting to take over and I have to be careful because I've, you know, <laughs> emerging women's already taking over. And so I'm like, okay, hang on here, you know. You're so, going to fall down the rabbit hole. Yes, I'm definitely falling down the rabbit hole. But, you know, it's interesting that you're, I've not read your fiction, Mm-hmm. I've read, obviously, Eat, Pray, Love, which completely had such a big effect on me. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how this process was for you, not really writing about yourself. In the last two books that you've had, you've been writing, you know, memoir style. And how, how did this feel? 
Well, it's not like a homecoming. That would be the word that, that, that I would use that pops into my mind because um, it's, it's true. I mean, you're not the only person who hasn't read their fiction. <laughs> you know, I started off as a writer of fiction many years ago, and, and the only thing I ever wanted to be my whole life, um, my only dream as a writer was to, to, was to write um, short stories and novels. And so my first book was a collection of short stories, and my second book was a novel, and I was well on that path, and then my life fell apart, as anybody who's got 10 bucks to buy a paperback with Eat, Pray, Love knows, and, um, and I ended up veering very sharply into this world of, of confessional memoir um, that, of course, I do not regret having done at all. It's been an extraordinary encounter with um, with myself and with readers. It's, it's just been an amazing phenomenon, and then after that came Committed, the follow-up, and but, you know, it, it, 12 years had passed and I hadn't written a word of fiction. And I just had that feeling that we get sometimes in our lives where I felt like if I drift any further away from this essential part of myself, I will never recover it again. Mm-hmm. It's time, you know, it's time. And also the luxury appointed to me by, by the success of Pray Love was that I could do something as whimsical as take three, four years out of my life to do a passionate study of 19th century botany and write a novel about 19th century botanical exploration because I could afford to do that. And, um, and so the book is also kind of a celebration of this place I am in my life right now where I have the, the time to pursue my creativity as I've always wanted to. So, um, so I wanted to write the kind of book I've always wanted to read. I wanted to write, you know, big, giant, epic, multi-generational page-turner. Right. And um, hopefully that's what I've done. <laughs> And are you anywhere in the book, you know, for me, Alma, I'm obviously thinking of you and thinking of Alma, but I'm just curious to see if you're in this anywhere. Well, my DNA is all over it, you know, um, yeah. because it came from me. And so I, I sort of see myself in all the characters. I think that's that's the way it is when, when you're writing a novel. Oh, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the title. It's called The Signature of All Things. <laughs> I suppose but, I should do that. Um, no, we're, uh, we're going to get to that because I am going to ask yeah. you about that. But first, yeah. like, so the, char- the main character is this, you know, brilliant young woman named Alma. And, you know, she's developing for me still because I'm still in the early part. But um, uh-huh. I do think of you when I see her. And I don't know if it's because oh. I'm looking for you. I'm, you know, be, for me, well, I know so much about you since I've read a lot about you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, is she here too? <laughs> well, of course, of course, I'm there. And I think my readers will find me all over the book. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely a continuation of my passions. It's a book about passion and it's a book about travel and about um, discovery of the self and discovery of the world and discovery of the self in the world. Um, you know, those are my themes that, that I've been looking at for a long time in a lot of different ways. And Alma is, um, you know, the thing I love most about her is that she's driven by a, a huge towering lust for knowledge and for learning and, Certainly in that, we are familiar. <laughs> and I, I really wanted to write a book about a woman um, who, who whose life is, is directed by a craving to learn. You know, I feel like that's a, a character who we just don't see enough in, in literature. And, um, and it's somebody who I feel like I know and somebody who I feel like I am and somebody who I think a lot of us feel like we are. So, so that, that, well, I wanted that to be the central love story of the book. There are other love stories in there to follow, but the central love of Alma's life is her study, um, mm-hmm. her pursuit of botany, her passion, her calling, really. Mm-hmm. So the signature of all things. I'm curious to see what that title entails and, and how you came upon to call it that. 
Well, um, the signature of all things is actually a theory that was posited in the 16th century by a quite eccentric German mystic who was also a, um, a plant enthusiast named Jacob Bohm, who came to believe that God had hidden in the design of every plant on earth a clue as to the meaning and use of that plant. So, for instance, the, the, the simple way to describe it would be, you know, walnuts, if you open them up, it looks like a brain, and walnuts are very good for headaches. And sage leaves are shaped exactly like the human liver, and sage is very good for liver ailments. Mm. You know, so, so it was this idea of this compassionate kind of gardener of a god who wanted people to, to find their way to the clues hidden in the plants for, for what, how it would benefit us. And um, it's a lovely kind of medieval mystical theory, and it was well, well out of date by the time that my, my characters in my book come along. It had been, you know, there's, there's a lot of holes in that theory. A lot of leaves look like livers, and if you ate many of them, you would die. <laughs> you know, um, right. so, so, you know, there's, you know it's, it's, it's one of those theories where he came up with a theory and tried to make the science fit to it. And my book is sort of about the opposite. My character is a, is a real scientist who, um, you know, just studies the world and then deducts her theories after her study. However, she does fall in love with a man who still believes in that theory, who's also a botanist. And, um, and, and in a way, every single character in the book, all of them revolving around the world of plants, they're all looking for the signature of all things in some different way, whether it's scientifically or artistically or in the world of commerce. They're, they're trying to find the clues in the plant world um, to better their own lives. Right. What I love, and I this is the thing that I do see in this book so far and your other writing, is that you are a great connector of all things. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like, you know, it's almost like you take us on a tangent and yet it comes back around really beautifully to another piece that, you know, it's not a hanging thread. It always ties back. And, oh, um thanks. Yeah, and I'm, I, I think that the way you explain the signature of all things, I feel like that's, now it sort of makes sense to me. And I, and I think that, you know, plants are, we're all connected. Yeah. Well, without a doubt. And, you know, the other thing that, that I, and I thank you for saying that, because I feel like the novels that I love, um, and I do love 19th century novels, I love Jane Austen and Dickens and Trollope mm-hmm. and Eliot and, you know, that, that whole gang is my team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're my favorite. And I think that the mastery that they had is that they knew exactly from the first minute of the story where they were going and where they were taking you. And, they, and you know when you're in their hands that you're not going to kind of get abandoned on the side of the road, which sometimes happens in contemporary novels where you're like, how did we get here? And I'm stuck here now. <laughs> um, and I don't think either me or the author has any idea where we're going, you know? And, and so I wanted to have that same sense of, um, of leading the reader on a journey and saying, it's okay, you can trust me. We're, we're going to go on this together and we're, we're going to come back on the other side and we're going to have a really amazing experience in the middle. And, um, and I'm hoping that that's what the, the book will convey. Do you feel that in your own life that you have that same sort of philosophy as you do in your writing style where that you trust everything actually does have a purpose and will cycle back? I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I do. And it is magical thinking, right? It is, um, you know, cynics and, and realists of all sorts would object to that idea, but it also does seem to be the, the case. I mean, it's being shown now even in scientific and sociological studies that, that the people who are the most resilient and, and the people who seem to have 
lives of the, the richest quality are the ones who believe that there is some sort of a purpose to their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think it's kind of your job, if you're lucky enough to have shown up in this world, to um, either figure out what your purpose was or to make one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, otherwise, I, I don't really know what are we doing Otherwise, right? We're just in a waiting room. We're just kind of killing time. And, and I, you know, from earliest consciousness, I just didn't want to live in a waiting room. So, um, and, and, and in that regard, I'm very much like all of my characters. Well, she's, um, you know, she's definitely a purposeful young woman. Yes. Who you will see becomes a very purposeful middle-aged woman and then an extremely purposeful old woman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that whole, like, faith that everything, um, the tangents that life takes us on are actually, you know, there's, it's a dance between creating your own purpose, right? And letting it unfold and believing in the seemingly randomness of it. It's, you know, you want both. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, when I, when people have asked me if I believe in destiny, I absolutely do. But I think that destiny is a kind of contract. Um, between human beings and the mystery, right? Whatever you want to call the mystery, capital M. Um, mm-hmm. I just call it the mystery because it's easier. Um, right. And the mystery entails everything that happens in our lives. Um, and, and, and I feel like destiny is sort of a, an open question, right? Um, things are put before you, offerings are made, situations occur, and then you sort of decide what, what's going to be made of it. You know, um, somebody asked me the other day if I felt like my husband and I, if our love story was destined, and I said, no, I don't think our love story was destined, but I think our meeting was destined. Um, we certainly could have blown it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, if the invitation was presented, and then it was turned over to our care, you know, um, mm-hmm. and and what, what came next was up to us, but we could have easily walked away from it. And I've been in situations before in love and in, and in work and in relationships where an, an offering is there and for whatever reason um, the participants are unable or unwilling to see it through and it goes away. You know, mm-hmm. um, you can't, I don't think destiny can force you to do something that you're not going to do. <laughs> right. The other thing that's coming up right now is you have an incredible attention to detail. I mean, it's, um, I don't know, Robert Penn Warren is one of my favorite writers Mm. in this regard. And it's just on and on. And it just kind of reminds me a little bit of that here in this book. Um, Oh, great. That's a great honor to be putting that company. Right, huh? He's just so amazing. But it has that same sort of, it's like time stops and you're really, it's like the micro, like focus. It's almost like you're in the grass and you're looking at all the worlds like in between the blades and you could spend a lifetime doing that. And yet you, I always think, wow, Elizabeth Gilbert, she's just got such big vision. And you know what I mean? Like there is an interplay here and it's sort of like the destiny and the push-pull of destiny is the same in that the big thinking and yet the attention to the details. It seems like you have a, a pretty good balance of those two things going on. I'm wondering if that's ever a struggle for you. Um, you know, I, I, I think actually, I, I love, I love that idea. Thank you for, for pointing it out. Um, I think that the big picture is in the details, you know, um, mm. and, and it's not an accident that, that my character, that Alma Whitaker, um, who, who's a botanist, finds her way in the world um, through studying mosses 
which are incredibly tiny um, and, and incredibly intricate and which have been largely overlooked. And as a woman trying to make a name for herself in the botanical world, she discovers that there's this huge universe right underfoot that everybody is literally stomping on. Um, and, and that, you know, all the bigger showier botanists have, have made their name in bigger showier plants and flowers, you know, the orchidists and, and the people who study the great redwoods. Um, but she can't travel to those places. She can't, you know, she doesn't have that luxury to be able to take on those, those sort of showy mega, mega floras. And, and right in her backyard, there are probably 45 different varieties of moss growing on one boulder cropping. And she's able to find an entire universe in that moss. And she's actually um, able to ask the same giant questions about the origins of life itself through the study of these few boulders as the great men of her day are asking through the study of the cosmos and through evolution and through the fossil records that they're finding. So all the answers are everywhere. <laughs> you know, um, it's just that they're in literature for her because that sort of suits her life. And I also thought that was a bit of a metaphor for women's lives in general. I think that for most of history, women have led very rich, miniaturized lives. Um, you know, the, the, when you look at the, the artwork that women have done um, in Western civilization, it tends to be tiny. You know, it's, it's needlework or it's painting teacups. It's, um, it's, it's textiles. It's tiny knots. It's, um, because women's lives have, have been sort of compressed, unfortunately, into a smaller scale, and yet women bring their creativity to that small scale and make magnificent things on that scale. And, um, and so I thought it would be interesting to have a female character who does the same thing in the scientific world and who reaches the same conclusions as the great men by doing that. Um, and, and so I do think that in, you know, in her life and in her own lives, there's tremendous greatness to be found in, in the very small and the very everyday. Right. I mean, you know, there is this question, um, you know, within the women's movement, there was a Harvard Business Review study where called the, the vision thing, where they looked at women and um, whether it's true or perceived, women scored lower in visioning. Everything else was equal or higher than men CEOs. I mean, I could talk more about the study, but just to sum huh? it up, the women CEOs and, and high-level executives scored the low, you know, the only score that they didn't meet and were actually below men were the ability to huh? vision and have the big, this, big, the big, big picture. Right, the big picture. And there was mm -hmm. a lot of reaction to that where women were like, look, vision, vision, vision. We need to get you know, there's so much happening right here in front of our nose that's very, very important. Right. And so right. it's just, you know, to hear you articulate that, I just think it's very relevant right now. I think I think it is. And I think, you know, another thing that, that I think is the danger of that is, of course, a little myopia, right? Um, and, and also perfectionism. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that, that it, was, it was really important to me to write a novel about a woman who... Um, you know, was, was somebody of towering intellect. And I, and I really didn't want it to be a story about this was a woman who was brilliant, but nobody would listen to her because she was a woman. Um, I, I just felt like that was an oversimplification and also didn't honor the real lives of the real, um, incredibly respected 19th century female botanists who I studied um, as I was working on the book. And, um, but, but what I do find is that, and this is a huge generalization, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's a point worth making is that a lot of times what holds women back in the world is is this idea that they can't put something forward until it is perfect. Um, right. and, and, you know, we all know that has never stopped men. 
Right. <laughs> you know, um, and I, that's the thing that I'm always trying to convey to younger women, to young artists, to to young executives, to, to any woman I meet who's, who's, who's entering the world at all. It's don't hold back your voice. Don't hold back your ideas until they're perfect because, first of all, perfect doesn't exist. And secondly, you'll be overrun by people who are throwing out all sorts of stuff that's half formed when yours is 95% formed, you know, mm-hmm. 95% is good enough, <laughs> you know, push it forward, put it out there. And, and Alma suffers from that level of perfectionism. And I think it's probably one of the terrific saving graces of my own life that I actually don't have that problem. <laughs> I grew wow. up with a mother who taught me from a really early age that, um, that done is better than good. That was one nice. of her mottos that we grew up with. And, 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 you know, just finish it, just put it out there. It doesn't have to be immaculate. It just has to be done. Um, and, and I feel like that's gotten me so far. Um, but it's probably the reason that I have six books instead of one. Otherwise I would still be editing that first one, right. <laughs> you know, but I'm willing to, to, I'm willing to throw stuff out there in the world. And I'm always trying to, um, you know, empower women to, to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Let's take it to um, just the concept of emerging. This is, you know, our uh, organization is Emerging Women and the conference, which you will be speaking and representing at in October is Emerging Women Live. And, you know, it's interesting. You've got this book. It almost feels like a second or a third emergence in your life. And I'm just curious to Mm. see how that feels to you coming back out. This is a big, you know, body of work and it's an it's in an area of fiction that you are coming back to and and what's that energy like for you you know it's, it's a really great question because it is it is it is both a re-emergence um mm-hmm. is it you know returning to something that 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 i did you know lasted a long time ago um and it's also a new emergence because i've never done anything on this scale you know i've never taken on such a huge book as this um and and i also you know i am turning away a bit from how people know me and and that can be a scary thing in people's lives because you know um it's it's easy to be put in boxes right mm-hmm. <laughs> once somebody gets used to you being good at one thing they really kind of don't want you to to move out of that and it can be comforting to stay in that box. But on the other hand, then, you you know, you can bore yourself after a while. And, and I feel like I've had a number of iterations in my, in my career that, that I think at the time could have been seen as career suicide again and again and again. You know, I started off with just sort of getting a name for myself in the literary fiction world when I started to be a journalist, which is considered kind of the ghetto of writing. (laughs) And I dedicated you know, a lot of my years to journalism and, and loved it. And then just when I was getting a name for myself as a journalist who wrote exclusively for and about men, I wrote for GQ for many years, um, and I had this really wide male audience, I wrote the most feminine book you could possibly imagine, um, Eat, Pray, Love, a, a book that I was certain was going to lose me to the readers that I'd already built up. And, um, and then once I wrote Eat, Pray, Love, and I became kind of spokesmodel for, for women's consciousness and memoirs and and, and that sort of thing, now I'm going to, to write 19th century literary fiction, which is, you know, yet another step in what could be said to be the wrong direction, except for that I know it isn't, <laughs> because I know that I just have this one life, and I want to be doing at all times the things that inspire and excite me, and I have to trust and follow those instincts and believe that 
um, that, that I have instincts for a reason and that if I have a voice telling me it's time to take a shift and do this work, then I have to trust that that's the case and, and then let the outcome be whatever the outcome will be. Was it more of a fire or was it just a natural, like, wow, unfolding? Hmm. It, it was, it wasn't, it doesn't, nothing funny. Very few things for me, very few big projects for me start with fire. Um, because I think, you know, this is something that I've spoken to people too about is, is, you know, we're all told to follow our passions and nobody, you know, nobody believes that more than me. But passion is a tall order, right? Passion mm-hmm. is like a rock star emotion. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, and it's rare and it's, and it's, and it's towering and it's, it's a burning bush and a flame and signs from God and heart racing and all these big, giant, oversized feelings um, that, that we don't generally walk through a day to day of life holding on to because they're almost too big to hold, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm a bigger advocate of the more modest, quiet, and again, we go down to miniaturized, yeah. the more miniaturized version of passion, which is curiosity. Um, because curiosity is present all the time, you know? Um, and, and whereas passion is like getting knocked over by a wave, curiosity is a tap on the shoulder that very gently sort of says to you, do you want to know more about this? You know, do you, what, what do you think? You know, it sort of quietly invites you to turn your head an inch and sort of look more closely. And so I feel like I've, I've really followed my curiosity more than anything. And, um, and, and when I, you know, it's like a little scavenger hunt. You get, you know, you follow your curiosity one little step and then you look for the next clue and, and that piques your curiosity until you follow it and you follow it. And, and it's a more methodical kind of quiet path mm-hmm. um, than a grand passionate path. But the general overarching kind of motive is always the passion of having an interesting life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's such an interesting point because passion does feel like, you know, the extrovert. Right, so it always yeah. gets it always gets more attention, you know. Right, and um, and yet there's a lot of power in curiosity. It's yeah. it's also just to relate it back to the feminine space. There's so much. It, it seems passion's great and it's fire, and it's great to associate that and to recognize that a lot of feminine value, you know, that femininity is not just soft. That there, there is fire right. and there is passion. Right, and yet curiosity is so much more receiving. Whereas passion feels more outward. There's a receiving where you're really kind of, and that's so feminine to kind of curate something of this magnitude. And just for people listening, I think this is, I'm going to, it's almost 500 pages. So this is, (laughs) this is a a body of, it's it's $4.99. And it's big in its scale, right? I mean, it takes place all over the world, um, you know, and it takes on the really big, questions of the 19th century, um, evolution and mysticism, transcendentalism, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the civil war and, and abolitionism and, and the emergence of women and, you know, all, everything that was going on in the 19th century, which was a really big century, <laughs> um, that ended up a lot different than it started off and, and almost sort of witness to all of that and participant in a lot of it. So, so, you know, it does have this like kind of big thrusting, and masculine energy like the big 19th century books have those big trains of books but every single independent car of that train was just a small piece of curiosity you know um that 
that built and built and built until you've got this big thing. Um, and and I think is I think that I do best when I kind of keep my focus on on that level. And um, you know what they what they say about the way ants work they uh, they never hurry but never stop. <laughs> right. right. You know, it's just like the steadfast, um, just steadfast, stubborn pursuit of the things that are intriguing me with the trust that if I just keep looking at that and working on that and expanding that, it'll grow into something magnificent, hopefully. Right. Beautiful. And so you have three generations and we're kind of like using this book as like a nice platform to dig into all these other issues. But I'm curious, and again, I've not gone that far, but the you were saying that Alma becomes a very, very strong woman in her later years. And I'm just curious to see if for you yourself, here you are in probably that mid-range, um, yeah. you know, do you have a conversation with your inner crone or your inner wise woman, <laughs> the woman that lives in that, you know, the same era where the Alma, the seasoned Alma lives? That's such a cool question. You know, I actually have on my bulletin board next to my desk, probably have about five pictures hanging up of old ladies who are just, you know, oh. pictures that I clipped out because I just think they're fantastic. You know, um, they're just fabulous <laughs> and and cool. and wild. And um, you know, there's one of a that, that I found in a National Geographic from the 1970s that I found in a hotel room in Stockholm. And I was paging through it, and it's just, it's, and I have a little caption under it that says "My Retirement Plan," <laughs> and it's just this really cool old woman who looks really strong with these gnarly, you know, hands that have obviously done a lot of physical labor. And she's sitting in her wheelbarrow, taking a break from gardening and reading a book. Um, and her hair is a mess and her clothes don't match. And she just looks so um, completely contented in herself. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, that's who I'm aiming to become um, because there's so much power in that. And I have, you know, yes. I have those kinds of women in my family. I have, I come from really, um, fortunately, I come from from a line of uh, on both sides of women who just live forever. You know, my book mm. is dedicated to my grandmother who just turned 100 this year, and um, and it does. You know, aging at that level is just something that I never feared because all I ever saw was people getting more and more mighty as they got older. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I see, and I and I don't know if this is true in every family, but in my family, I certainly see the case that the men seem to diminish and they seem to get sort of beaten down and they get quieter and they get more humble and the Mm -hmm. women get stronger and stronger and stronger and more and more and more powerful. And um, I put a question up on on Facebook the other day and I said, how old, if if somebody would wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you how old you were, how old do you, would you feel? Like without even thinking about it, what do you think your, your internal age is? Oh, yeah. And all of the women who were in their teens and 20s said they felt old and tired. And all the women who were old said they felt young and strong. And, and I just thought, this is an amazing piece of information in a, in a culture that really sees youth as an accomplishment. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and teaches women to be terrified of getting older. The reality seems to be that those are the best years um, and that you'll never feel more beautiful. You'll never feel more powerful. You'll never feel more important than, um, than, than you come into yourself in that way. So that's another reason why I really wanted to write a birth to death novel. I really wanted to take Alma from, you know, the, the first moments of her life to last um, and just see the evolution of a woman in her completeness. 
Yeah, it's so, gosh, it's so, it's so deep. I've, I personally have had such a fear of, I'm not saying growing old 60s, 70s, but definitely 80s, 90s and, and the death. Like I, I, it's something primal in me that I'm, I'm working yeah. with. And yet I know that that's such a sweet spot. And like, once again, it's a primal thing inside me that I, because my mom passed away. So I haven't, and my grandmother was in France. So I haven't really seen an, a woman go yeah. through this. And um, yet I know that there is a, a very sweet, future ahead in, in those years. And I'm just not quite sure why. Why is it, do you think that it becomes easier and more harmonious for women in their later years? You know, there's a poem somewhere, and I can't remember anything about it, except for the line about, I almost feel like it's Stevenson, where he talks about the old women in Japan who have seen so many earthquakes that when the earth starts to tremble, they don't even look up from their sewing, you know? Um, and I think that, that, that you know, or their gardening <laughs> just don't yeah. even look up anymore. I feel like I can feel that already happening in my own life on a, you know, on a smaller scale where, you know, even at the age of 44 that I am now, I, stuff that would have just, met, like, rocked me off my foundations 20 years ago just can go, I can let it pass in the matter of a few hours and just, just cause I've been through it, you know, right. and, and I've seen how certain dramas end and I've seen how certain stories end. And I've seen that if you just wait it out, <laughs> you know, eventually it'll play itself out. It'll be all right. Um, it's probably going to be fine. You know, all the stuff that you start to learn over time. I mean, I think that's the essence of wisdom. Wisdom is sort of the opposite of panic. And I think that, that youth is an era of great excitement, but also of great panic because yeah. everything is new. Everything, it's the first time, it's the first time your heart's ever been broken. It's the first time something didn't work out. It's the first time, you know, that you've been terrified. And then once you, you know, you kind of get like, you turn into one of those river stones. You know, just yeah. There aren't that many firsts. Right. Yeah, you're like, you know, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is not my first, second, third, or fourth rodeo. <laughs> right. You know, um, it's it's really probably going to be fine. And when you talked about that fear of death, I find it really interesting when you see studies of um, of women who live in nursing homes. Their the biggest fear isn't dying at all. Most most old people by a certain age are not afraid of death. They're afraid of poverty. Um, they're afraid of uh, they're afraid of poverty and dependence. They're afraid oh. of losing. But they're they're watching their bank accounts because they know it's expensive to be old, and and that's their main fear. But death itself doesn't seem to be something that gets like that causes a lot of anxiety by that age. It's like you just it's a neighbor that you've been living next to for a while. Right. <laughs> you've gotten right. used to the idea that's... of sharing a room with them or sharing a you know share a fence line with them. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know. It seems it seems to be that way. Um, we'll see, I suppose, huh? <laughs> I know. Well, no. I mean, just it's just so comforting having this. That's why I love the conversation of the inner crone and finding a way that we can actually tap in, whether it's through reading or speaking inward, not just to who we are presently. And and I know through therapy, we can regress and talk to ourselves as a little girl, but I don't know very much therapy or any kind of practices that really reach out into the future and tap into the wisdom of the inner crone, which is really who we are, minus the experience. And That's um, really cool. That's one of, you know, I, I did ask on Facebook one day, I did say, 
you know, we always you always see in magazines there's a question where they say, What advice would you give to your younger self? But yeah. But as you were just saying, I said, I'm more interested in the question of what advice your older self would give to you. Exactly. Um, yes. You know, and because mine is always telling me like, Are you kidding? You're really gonna lose sleep over this? <laughs> God. Like, do you have any idea what I've been through by this age that you're going to stay awake at two o'clock in the morning worrying about this? Right. You know, really? <laughs> Come on. Right. Well, just just hearing this is just, it's a nice reminder to give ourselves a bit of a break and to maybe tap into that perspective a little bit more. And it would help also with the perfectionism and all of that, but just to slow it down so that we are breathing in and taking in the detail. Yeah. I have to say, thank you for the term, the inner crown, by the way. I kind of, you know, inner child has been sort of you know, used to, to the point that it doesn't even seem to have a meaning anymore. But yeah. when you said inner crone, that went right through me like, yes! Right? <laughs> I, I know, I know she's in there. I, I know, I, I know. I'm just, uh, in fact, I just came up with that when you were talking. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we did that together. <laughs> awesome. It's yours. Well, you know. on it. Write a book. Can I put your name on there? <laughs> can I put with Elizabeth Gilbert? <laughs> you know what? I'll take the assist like in a hockey game, but I think you definitely put that one in the goal. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, yeah, that's so great. And this whole conversation is just, uh, it's just so relevant. And I so appreciate you bringing that, that curiosity and the receiving and taking the limelight away from the passion a little bit. Um, not that it doesn't deserve it, but you are someone who spends time in those in the detail and the small things, and you're giving a voice to this quiet existence that, especially as entrepreneurs and women who are emerging, we can, and I'll say this for myself, can just sweep that under the rug because, you know, is that going to get me the the investor or the sponsor? No, I've got to speak from this place of bigness. And yeah. and yet the real power does, over time, come from this this deeper place. And I just... It's I love your hunt. You know, yeah. um, that's the word that I use all the time. I mean, I think everyone um, is trying to play the grand final scene of the big opera. Right. But really, it's the scavenger hunt that's the most interesting. Like, you know, eyes on the ground, looking for that four-leaf clover, looking for that little scrap of paper hidden under the next rock, like trying, right. to, trying to find the clue because it is just a series of very small, almost invisible clues. Um, and And there's a level of trust that, that develops where you just believe, you know, mm-hmm. like right now I'm, I'm, I, I have, it's so dim, but I just have this idea in my mind about writing a novel about girls behaving recklessly in the last year of prohibition in New York city. I have no idea why, you know, but it's, it's just a tiny little glimmer of something mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and so I'm starting to check books out from the library about, prohibition <laughs> and, and like, what is that why am I interested in this and try mm-hmm. to find why that clue was put before me because that's my part of it right right curiosity is sort of given to you but your response is your job um and, sure. and whether you take responsibility for that curiosity is your job right and you know what's coming to mind is you don't have a desire to write a futurist type of novel or you know science fiction or ooh. 
literally never comes to me. Well, no, it's interesting. You've got the past. It's, you know. Yeah, now that you've said it, I'm like, huh? Am I supposed to be writing some dystopic, utopic? Um, yeah, that's interesting. No, I, it's never, it's never occurred to me. I think it's because I'm such a researcher. Mm. I love history. Um, and I feel like the past is almost a foreign language. Um, and each, each era has its own language. And if you can go back and learn that language, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to do. I don't, I don't know if I have the vision. Ha ha, there we go, the vision thing. <laughs> I don't have the vision to, um, to, to imagine uh, a world without history in it yet. <laughs> Interesting. But we'll see, man. I, I mean, I want to try all kinds of things, so maybe, maybe I should set myself that challenge. Yeah, well, you know, it's really great what you're doing, and um, if you do the Prohibition, fabulous, because I think it's giving voice to the lives of women during a time where they actually weren't captured, and... To go back and to bring that alive is is great, and to know that women were strong just as they are now, and and really to be able to have the freedom to develop their characters is I don't know, I just think it's rich, whether it's past well, or future. Yeah, I also think it's a response. The novel that I just wrote um, is is so buttoned up um, in terms of Victorian sexuality. I think by the end of it, I was like, I want to, I want to make some girls just go nuts. Like, yeah, right. You know, and I'm also really interested as a, as a very staid and happily married and quietly plodding along middle-aged woman. I'm so far from that impulse in my own life, you know, to, to misbehave, to be wild, to be, to take risks at that level. I just think it'd be fun to kind of go back and try to remember what that even felt like. I'm very happy not to be doing it because the consequences of it always were always so dire. <laughs> right. But on the other hand, um, I thought it would be sort of thrilling to uh, to go back and play with it a bit. Cool. Well, one last question um, sure. for our listeners. If you were going to give, you know, you're basically, I don't know if the word master is, but you are very familiar with the creative process as a writer. And and a lot of women right now that are in our audience that are emerging, they're very well steeped in the creative process. And I know from my own experience that it's, you know, it comes and it goes. And yeah. when it's not there, you just feel completely paralyzed. And I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom, especially mm. for women who are merging into something and there is, a, there is that fire and curiosity and unknown and fear. And how can you help women who are struggling with um, staying on top of, of that process and staying in their most creative space? You know, I would, I would, it's funny, I would liberate them from the idea of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is, this is sort of what goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but when people, um, when people come to me and they say that they're blocked and, and that you know, it's not happening, I feel like they've gotten into a very traditionally male artistic wrestling match with their muses, right? Um, yeah. And that's like, that's how Norman Mailer, right? <laughs> it's, a punch, it's a punch out fest, right? Right. You know, like that's, that's and that, you know, it takes a huge toll on the artist. It takes a huge toll on the creative person's family. It takes a, a toll on the, the creativity itself. And and my feeling is um, back off, you know, mm-hmm. um, back off and try to lower the stakes and and look again for the curiosity, 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 curiosity. You can almost always access curiosity. Mm. Um Always. Like, I mean, I could go access it today, just walking down the street. I'm sure there's going to be something that's a teeny, tiny little bit interesting, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so begin back there, you know, um, go, go back to that, to that spot. And also 
try to, this is something Martha Beck writes about a lot, the idea of hot trails, she calls it. You know, when, um, mm. when you're on the search for something um, and, and you, know, say you're, you know, say you're a hunter and you're hunting, you're hunting a wild animal and you lose the trail, the term that they would use in hunting is that you double back and you try to find the last spot where the trail was hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and instead of forging forward into the vast forest with no idea where you're going, you know, go back a mile. Um, when was the last time something felt inspiring to you? When was the last time something was exciting to you? Return to that and then be gentle with it, right? Don't like take it by the neck and try to interrogate answers from it about what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go back to that spot and sniff around, put your hand on the ground, feel where it was warm and see if there's a, a little small overlooked clue near there that you somehow missed. Um, and, and just, and also be faithful that you live in a world of abundance, not a world of scarcity. And I think that's probably kind of the biggest thing that's defined my career when, when I've gone through trial spells, I just have this belief that there are more ideas and um, that, that that last idea I had was not the last idea on earth. Um, there are plenty of them. There's room for everybody and eventually another one will come. And, um, and, and you just have to be ready to receive it, to use a word that, that you touched on earlier in the conversation. Mm. And then act. <laughs> and then act. Um, but only once the signal has come. So it's a dialogue. You know, it's, a, it's a conversation, but it doesn't need to be a shouting match. It can be a very gentle, inquisitive, mutual conversation once more between you and the mystery. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Liz. This has been a real treat, and we will My see pleasure. you in October. I cannot wait. I'm so, so, so excited to be here and to meet everybody. Thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate it.